0: We tend to think of the Christmas story as a New Testament thing. Wrong. The promised birth of Messiah hovers over the entire Old Testament. You'll be amazed and encouraged that your Bible offers so many miraculous prophecies all come true. Plus, you'll love Charlie Dyer's devotional, The Un-Christmas Present. Join us now for the land and the book. Hi, I'm John Gager. Our host for this broadcast, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Noted Old Testament scholar, a guy who travels frequently to the Middle East. Charlie, lots uh, coming up on today's program, but you know, our hearts are heavy as we think about all that's going on in the Middle East these past months. Many of us have been struggling with questions of what to think and feel, and in the midst of all this, God's heart for the Jewish
1: people remains unchanged. He is faithful to His chosen people. Indeed He is, and that's why our friends at Life and Messiah would like to help you better connect with this crucial aspect of God's character. They're offering their new book, Sharing God's Heart, to Land in the Book Listeners, This 30-day guided reflection will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles, written by Life and Messiah staff, provide insight into Jewish life and culture. They can help prepare you to share with your friends the peace of Messiah that they so desperately need. If you'd like one of these insightful books for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your copy. That's lifeinmessiah.org. With just a few days left on the calendar for 2023,
0: it seemed fitting that we should take a look back over the top stories of the past year, stories from the Middle East, and just see how they weighed in, what impact they've made in that region. And as we look back, certainly the top headline has to be the Hamas October 7 attack against Israel and the war that followed. What impact has that attack and
1: subsequent war had on the region, Charlie? Well, that attack sent shockwaves through Israel. It wasn't just the fact that Israel was taken by surprise, though that was certainly part of it. It was the sheer brutality and evil of the attack that horrified Israel and brought back memories of the Holocaust the deliberate murder of young and old alike from babies to grandmothers, the rape and torture of young women and men, as well as the abduction of hundreds of hostages. These actions galvanized and energized a nation that up till then had been fractured and divided. It didn't matter if someone was on the left or the right, if they were secular or religious, they came face to face with an existential threat from a group committed to wiping them out and after catching their collective breath, they responded with a resounding, never again. Israel declared war on Hamas and committed to wiping out a group that clearly was committed to their destruction. Sadly, Hamas did succeed in accomplishing one thing. They halted, at least temporarily, what seemed to be progress toward peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia under the Abraham Accords. Other Arab neighbors also displayed their unwillingness to stand against Hamas. The Palestinian Authority, Jordan, and Turkey came out condemning Israel. Uh, There are political and religious reasons for their actions, but it raised questions in Israel on their reliability as partners for peace. President Biden kept the U.S. solidly behind Israel, though he's also felt pressure from the progressive wing of his own party. As the campaign wore on, his support was starting to waver, but he has continued to provide Israel with the tools it's needed to get the job done. The other impact on the region has been the hostility between Hezbollah, the Houthis, Iran, and Israel. Uh, The war against Hamas will wind down, but the next war could be right around the corner unless a diplomatic solution, especially between Israel and Hezbollah, can be arranged.
0: Well, the second major headline from the past year was the political divisions you've referenced within Israel over the coalition's focus on judicial reform. At its essence, what is the major problem? What are people fighting over here?
1: Yeah, Yeah. until October 7, this was far and away the most dominant headline of 2023 in Israel. And though it disappeared from the headlines after the start of the war, the issue has not gone away. Israel is fractured politically. Netanyahu was forced to include two far-right political parties in his coalition, and they pushed for judicial reform, along with several other controversial proposals. Now, on the surface, the proposed judicial reforms don't seem that radical. They offer checks and balances between the legislative and judicial branches that are a normal part of, like, our own Constitution— The problem is that secular Israelis believe the changes are just a smokescreen for the legislature to push right-wing religious and political changes and to eventually pack the judicial bench with conservative judges. And both sides whipped up their supporters with inflammatory rhetoric, along with demonstrations and marches. Each side conducted a scorched-earth policy that left no room for compromise. The current government has the votes to pass their legislation, so the opposition is trying to delay the legislation while asking the liberal judges currently on the Supreme Court to strike down the laws being passed. The radical voices on both sides have made it almost impossible for more centrist legislators to find a pathway for compromise, and that's resulted in a government in gridlock. Sadly, what that means is once the war's over, the internal fight will almost certainly resume in full force.
0: You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is working us through a list of top stories, top issues that have described the nation of Israel and its struggles throughout this past year. Story number three is focused on Iran. Iran rises to the top as a a major source for much of the conflict in the Middle East, not just Israel. What role have they played in the events of the past year?
1: Iran has really been the puppet master. They're the ones pulling the strings in the various conflicts all around the Middle East, especially those facing Israel. Iran helped fund and arm both Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza. Uh, The two groups and Iran are on opposite sides theologically, but Iran's only concern is that they all share a commitment to Israel's destruction. Iran is more closely aligned, theologically at least, to Hezbollah and they've provided them with a far greater quantity and quality of rockets and missiles. Hezbollah is a safety valve for Iran. Should Israel attack Iran or push too hard on Iran's expansion, they're prepared to have Hezbollah launch an attack on Israel, especially in its north. Hamas's actions on October 7 might have upset Hezbollah's plans for a similar surprise attack, but they're still ready to go to war, and we're seeing a low-level conflict taking place even right now. Iran has also helped arm the Houthis in Yemen. They're farther away from the action, but they do have missiles capable of striking the southern part of Israel. So far in the war against Hamas, Israel has been able to shoot down those Houthi drones and ballistic missiles, but they'll keep trying. Uh, The Houthis have also started disrupting shipping in the Red Sea. And though they've targeted Israeli-connected ships or ships bound for Israel, that has the potential of disrupting goods traveling through the Suez Canal to Europe as well. And of course, the major threat posed by Iran is nuclear. They continue to exceed agreed-on limits on the number of centrifuges they can operate and the amount of highly enriched uranium they can stockpile. Uh, They are getting very close to reaching that breakout stage where they could produce nuclear weapons, and they're developing the rockets that could carry them. Hamas might have been the immediate problem facing Israel, but Iran, for at least for this last year and certainly coming into the new year, will remain the far greater long-term threat.
0: Charlie, I think a lot of listeners hear you talk about the Houthis, and if we could take a map, and if you had to put a red pushpin into that map indicating their essential home base, home territory, hometown, whatever you want to call it, where would that pin land?
1: It would land at the very end of the Arabian Peninsula. In fact, the Queen of Sheba came from that area. Uh, that's dominated by the Houthis today.
0: Well, the last major story, at least for many of our listeners, has to be tourism. Israel and many other countries in the region experienced nine months of near-record tourism, followed by three months of virtual collapse. Was it just the war, or are there other reasons for the dramatic collapse?
1: Far and away, the main reason for the collapse of tourism has been the war. But it's not just the fighting, since most tourists don't travel down near the border with Gaza. I see at least four reasons for this dramatic collapse that took place. The first was all the rockets and missiles that were fired by Hamas. Thousands were fired into Israel. And while most hit the communities near Gaza, rockets were also fired at Tel Aviv and at other cities along the coast, at Beersheba, and at the cities in the Shephelah, and even toward Jerusalem in the airport. And that leads to the second reason for the collapse. Most airlines stopped flying into Israel once the airport was targeted. Now, no missiles actually hit the airport. But in our litigious world, airlines remain incredibly risk-averse. And when most airlines stop flying, uh, most tour groups stop coming. In fact, John, I just had uh, my first tour for Israel in the spring is going to have to be postponed because I got noticed that the airline that I'm flying on has also decided that they're not gonna fly on that date. Hmm. So that uh, problem is gonna continue even going into the new year. Now, the third reason for the dramatic collapse though, was the influx of Israeli refugees from the communities around Gaza and from the along the border there with Lebanon. And many hotels were turned into evacuation centers. The Dan Hotel chain, for example, it converted 11 of its 17 hotels into housing for evacuees. And finally, the fourth, the last reason for the dramatic collapse was the severity of this particular war. You know, most recent conflicts lasted a week or two before a ceasefire was arranged. This conflict is now in its third month and it's uncertain when Israel will again be open for business as it was before October 7. Add to that the rather bellicose threats from Hezbollah, the Houthis, in Iran, and it just seems unsettled to tourists, especially those who've never traveled to Israel before. You know, security has always been a major concern, and now it's a concern that's keeping them from even thinking about a trip in the near term.
0: And that's a look back at the year's top stories from the Middle East. Up next, our conversation, Awaiting the Manger, Whispers of Advent in the Old Testament. That's right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Stay with us. It's an extraordinary story, filled, though, with ordinary people, the coming of Messiah to earth as a baby. But God used the lives of ordinary people to foreshadow Christ's coming during the centuries and even millennia before his birth. To wrestle with that is to rejoice in the tenderness and compassion that God has shown his people from the very beginning. This is The Land and the Book, and I'm John Gager promising an unusual Christmas conversation next. But before we get to that, here's some encouragement maybe you could use. You open the Word of God and you read that God's law says priests cannot be rulers and kings cannot be priests. Does your Jewish friend have a problem with the Christian era and these scriptures? Roy Schwartz of Chosen People Ministries, what do you say? Well, one of the issues that many of us as Jews have is the problem of uh, church and state, that there should be a separation of church and state. And very few Christians really understand that that's a biblical concept. God separated the church and the state, that priests were not to be kings and kings were not to be priests. And there's a reason for that. To be a king, you got to get involved in dirt and politics and all kinds of schmutz, which is dirt. But being a priest, you are devoted to the Lord. You are devoted to intercession. You are holy to the Lord. And so that's why it says in Scripture, we are both kings and priests. But when the church became kings, it messed things up. It Mm. presented a terrible reality. And, And so there's a spiritual truth in separation between church and state, between priests and kings. Boy, that's an interesting assessment, Roy. Thanks for bringing that to our attention here on The Land and the Book. It was a quiet Saturday night. She and her husband were watching TV. That's when Oceana's heart stopped beating. It took her husband's CPR as well as a room full of paramedics to bring her back. But then what? Her long road to recovering meant having to slow down. I mean, way down. She napped four and five hours during the day, After getting a full night's sleep, no driving kids around, no homeschooling, no chores, no work, just quiet, stillness, peace. Oceana Fleiss learned many lessons during that season. She's a mother of four, as well as a writer and gifted communicator. Hey, it's great to welcome you to the land and the book, and thanks for the chance to connect, Oceana. Thank you for having me. Well, you have been on a long journey that has taken you to some faraway places like the Old Testament, and you suggest Mm -hmm. that there are whispers of Advent in the Old Testament. Elaborate. Give us one example right out of the gun.
2: Well, just talking about Jesus Himself, the way He talked about the Old Testament, after His resurrection, when He was walking on that road, uh, they call it the road to Emmaus, He was talking to disciples that didn't even know it was Him, and um, He goes through the Old Testament, and it says that, "...beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself." And I just love that. That's kind of where the whole thing starts, is that Jesus himself went back to the Old Testament and told all about himself in all of those Old Testament stories. Hmm. So he must be there in all those stories, and that's really where it all starts.
0: Well, you've called these, by way of a subtitle, whisperings of Advent. But some of us might ask, why would God whisper? Why not shout? (laughs) I mean, this is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the the only way to heaven. And especially knowing how difficult some people find the Old Testament is to follow. Why whisper? Why not
2: shout? Hmm. Well, I don't know why he was burned. <laughs> I, I think that he had his amazing plan and purpose from before the beginning of the foundation of the world. And the story, the way he chooses to tell it is just this kind of amazing unfolding. We see it first in Genesis 3.15, where he says the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, the seed of the serpent's head. And we see that right at the beginning. We don't know what that means, really. We just know that there's a Deliverer coming, and then as we go through the Old Testament, it just gets stronger and stronger, and we start seeing more specific things as it goes through until, boom, when Jesus comes on His birth at the manger, then we we see the angels come, and we see that big shouting that we're waiting for. But I don't know exactly the purposes of God doing it that way, but I think it's a really beautiful, beautiful way that He has expressed His love for us throughout the Old Testament. You know, well,
0: even now, as early as we are in this conversation, what you are really doing is underscoring the problem that many of us have in today's evangelical world in a sort of maybe unintended minimization of the Old Testament. We just, we just don't dig in there much. We don't spend much time there. We love the grace passages and the, the Gospels and, and that practical stuff from Paul, but the Old Testament, eh, you know, we're, we're a little shy about that. What are your thoughts?
2: Oh, absolutely. I 100% agree with that. When when I was young, in my 20s or so, I had listened to so many sermons, and I had gone to Bible school for a year, and so I thought, okay, I know the Bible really well, and I thought, I think I know the whole Bible as well as anybody can know it. I thought I knew everything there was to know about it, and I just <laughs> didn't feel the need to um, really study it anymore, and honestly, I was starting to get kind of bored with it, and it really wasn't until a friend sat me down and showed me that verse in Luke that there's so much more to the Old Testament that I realized that the Old Testament started coming alive and being so rich and so strong. And as I wrote this book, going through all these Old Testament stories, I was amazed. You know, I, I do one story and I'd be amazed at how much God's love is there and how it points to Jesus. And then I think, wow, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this amazing story. And I'd be so encouraged. And then, i go to the next one and be like, even better, you know? By the time I got to the end of writing this book, I was just like swimming in a pool of God's love Mm. just from the Old Testament. And it's totally worth studying and just amazing.
0: Oceana Fleiss is a mother of four, as well as a writer and gifted communicator. She joins us today on The Land and the Book. And I'm John Geiger saying thank you for listening. You know, Oceana, you have taken the best of your research and ponderings and put them into this book, Awaiting the Manger. One of the things that I appreciate is that as you take us to these very sightings of Christ in the Old Testament, you explore each account through the perspective of those who lived it. One example might be Hagar, whom we meet in Genesis. How does her story foreshadow something of Advent?
2: Oh, hey, I just love her so much. Um, her story was that she was Sarah's servant and she came from Egypt. So she left her homeland and probably not of her own free will and came and was living with this family that she wasn't related to, that she didn't understand their their ways, certainly not their God. And then Sarah had this plan, right? She knew that God had promised a baby to Abraham, but Sarah took it in her own hands and said, here, have Hagar. And so Hagar becomes his second wife, and she gets pregnant, and she starts acting like, wow, so she's kind of better than Sarah now, right? Mm -hmm, She gets mm -hmm. a little arrogant. It kind of implies that, that she's like, woohoo, I'm the wife with the baby now, and you don't have a baby, Sarah, so she thinks her position is rising, and Sarah doesn't like that and she's treating her really bad, and so Hagar goes out into the wilderness because she's like, forget it. I'm just going to go back to Egypt. I don't like this place. I can't handle it anymore, and she goes out there, and um, she's in the desert, and it doesn't say but i think maybe she thought what am i doing i can't i'm a pregnant woman walking through the you know the wilderness to get back to egypt and i can't be out here by myself but then some scholars think that So it says an angel of the Lord came to her, and some scholars think that it was Jesus himself who came to her. And it says that he sees her, and he takes care of her, and he says, you're going to be okay. I don't want you to go back to your pagan gods in Egypt. Come back. Come to know me. And he totally cares for her, and she says, now I know that God sees me. And I don't know what better way to talk about the nativity jesus coming he sees us he sees the brokenness of this world he sees our own brokenness and he chose to leave his own heavenly realm and just come and be with us and take care of us and in the desert in our brokenness he comes to us
0: hmm. from moody radio this is the land and the book i'm john geiger joined today by Oceana fleiss another example i think is the shunammite woman whom we know from the colorful Mm. life of Elisha. What a life he led. (laughs) What is it in her story, though, that speaks of awaiting the manger?
2: So the Shilamite woman, she was a Gentile. She was outside of the land, but Elisha would pass by her house and she would welcome him in to stay with her on his travels and her and her husband. And so because he was doing that she asked her husband to make a room for him. So she makes this really amazing room up on the roof. So there's like a bed and there's a table and there's all these different things. And so he stays in that room, but it never says that she goes into that room. And it's kind of symbolic of her faith you know she doesn't totally embrace the God of Elijah, but she kind of stands outside on the doorway. but then he wants to help her, and he finds out that she is barren, and she's her husband's getting older, and he's going to die eventually, and she won't have anyone to take care of her and so he prays, and the Lord blesses her with a child, and she hadn't asked for this child, she hadn't asked for anything from Elijah. she just is given this child. By Elisha praying and the Lord blessing her, and so she has this wonderful child that she adores, and she's so grateful, and she thinks, "Well, maybe there is something to his mm. God, but then he gets sick, her son, and he dies, and so now she totally freaks out and goes after him, and it's so dramatic and so exciting and yes. So Elijah comes back and her son, he raises from the dead. He goes up to the rooms because she laid the son in that upper room, in that sort of symbol of the presence of God. And that's the first time she ever goes into that room. Mm -hmm. So he comes back and he goes in and he prays and she, the little boy is raised from the dead. And I... I don't know, the parallel to Mary, where Mary did not ask to become pregnant. Mm-hmm. It was a gift that was just given to her. But she loved Jesus so much as she raised him as her own. And then he dies. And then he comes back. Mm-hmm. And there's just such a parallel there between the Shinemite woman and Jesus and Mary. Yeah.
0: I love the quotes and the lyrics to Christmas carols that you've included. Uh, As I worked through the book, I was stopped in my tracks as if reading for the very first time the words to Good Christian Men Rejoice. You know, we sing the songs and we love them, but good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice. Now ye need not fear the grave. Jesus Christ was born to save, calls you one and calls you all to gain his everlasting call. Christ was born to save. Christ was born to save. That just gives me goosebumps.
2: Me too, That is amazing. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, as we talk about uh, this idea of whispers of Advent in the Old Testament, how do you think our lives will be richer, our faith stronger, if we make the effort to find the Advent in the Old Testament?
2: Well, for one thing, Advent time around Christmas can be so crazy busy. You know, I have four kids, and my kids are older now, but when they were little, you just have all this pressure to make it perfect and that Christmas morning be great and all of that. And I really found that focusing on Jesus alone, just Jesus, really changes the whole Vibe of that season, you know, just getting my mind back, focus on who he is. I think about Mary and Martha, you know, and how Martha was like going crazy busy that 's how I am during Christmas sometimes, <laughs> but Mary is the one who sat at jesus 's feet and learned from him, and she did the better thing he says, and I try to remember that during the Christmas season, and going back to the Old Testament is such a Rich gift that he's given to us. Yes. I mean, we talk about gifts at Christmas. But the Old Testament is a gift. Knowing God's character through those stories, knowing how he, almost all of the stories, at least the ones that I studied for this book, they're all about the broken and the needy and the hurting and how God comes to them and they're tired and mm-hmm. exhausted. Like Elijah, you know, he was exhausted by the brook and God feeds him and he's so gentle with him. And there's just story after story of, of God's loving, gentle care to his people. And I can relate to that so much. And knowing that, knowing his character, I mean, that's what it's all about, is growing in his character and who he is to us. So it definitely strengthens our faith.
0: Well, there's just so much here, very rich, and uh, you've done a great job of bringing these stories to light, Awaiting the Manger. Oceana Fleiss has put it together for us, a link to the book to her website at ours, thelandandthebook.org. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time. Hope your family has a a great Christmas and not too crazy.
2: You too, thank you.
0: All right, up next on The Land of the Book, we're headed for a fresh set of Bible questions. I love what you're thinking about. Let's see how Charlie answers, coming up right here. don't know what things are like in your house right now, but it's a bit crazy just a couple days before Christmas. Hi, John Gager here with you with The Land and the Book. Charlie, uh, things crazy at your house, too, or pretty calm, cool, and collected? You know, with just two of us home now, it's fairly calm at this time of year. Okay, and nothing wrong with calm either, believe me. Well, we're excited about the questions that have come into us here at The Land and the Book. There's a wide spectrum of them, and they take us right to the Scriptures, to things that we need to be thinking about. So, That said, let's dig in with Mary's question. A book I'm reading, she says, says the new Jerusalem will be God's eternal dwelling place, while the new earth will be man's eternal dwelling place. The new creation will then be heaven on earth. However, I thought believers from the church age would have heaven as their eternal state, while believers from Israel would have an eternal state on earth. Help me understand all this.
1: Yeah, and some do see the destiny of the church being in heaven, the destiny of Israel being on earth. But Hebrews 12, uh, in verses 22 to 24, the writer describes the heavenly Jerusalem as a place, he says, where there are thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, along with the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. But he also includes God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Now, those verses indicate the new Jerusalem is the dwelling place of God the Father of Jesus, angels, church-age believers, and Old Testament saints who are those righteous made perfect. So we're all going to inhabit the New Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, John describes the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and he says, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They'll be his people, and God himself will be their God. On the gates in the New Jerusalem are the 12 tribes of Israel while the foundations are the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, so it connects the city with both the church and Israel. I put all that together, we don't know all the details of what the future holds, but we do know that we're all going to be part of the new Jerusalem.
0: Brian is asking about Revelation 3, verse 10. Our Lord told the church in Philadelphia he would keep them from the hour of trial. Why were they singled out like this? And can modern-day Christians deduce from this verse that there will someday be a pre-tribulational rapture?
1: Well, I see the seven churches in Revelation 2-3 to representing seven different types of believers or churches found in virtually every time period within the church age. That is, there have been theologically orthodox but loveless churches and believers like the church in Ephesus, persecuted churches and believers like the church in Smyrna, and so on. The church in Philadelphia represented a church and believers who seem to be, at least from the outside, small and weak, but who've remained faithful to Christ and Jesus promises to keep them out of the time of trouble that will come to test or try those on earth. Now, I see that time of trouble in the larger context being the tribulation period. And I see Jesus promising to keep this church and by extension, all faithful believers from that period of time. With the different Greek prepositions available, you know Jesus could have said he'd keep them through the coming time of trouble or keep them in the midst of the time of trouble. But instead, he promises to keep them out of the time of trouble. Uh, They won't be on earth during this time period of the tribulation, and I do see that as one of several reasons for holding to a pre-tribulational rapture. I also see it applying to more than just that one church in John's day because Jesus ends all of his messages to the churches with an application to the churches in every age. He says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So uh, I do see this as a strong argument for us not going through the tribulation period.
0: From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. And you know, Charlie, Israel has been on all of our minds for months now, and many of us struggling with questions of what to think, what to feel. In the midst of all this, God's heart for the Jewish people remains unchanged. He is faithful to his chosen
1: people. That's right, John. And especially during this Christmas season, as this year's drawing to a close, our friends at Life and Messiah would like to help you better connect with this crucial aspect of God's character. They're offering their new book, Sharing God's Heart, to land in the book listeners. This 30-day guided reflection will help connect you with God's heart for His precious people. The articles written by Life and Messiah staff provide insight into Jewish life and culture, they can help prepare you to share with your friends the peace of Messiah they so desperately need. If you'd like one of these insightful books for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button there to find out how you can receive your copy. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Thank you, Charlie. Teresa would like a biblical perspective on understanding
0: why polygamy was allowed in the Old Testament. She says, as a female Christian, I don't understand this and find it somewhat disheartening in trying to understand God's thoughts about it. Help me work through this.
1: Yeah, and we're not told why God permitted polygamy, so take my thoughts here with a grain of salt. I believe one purpose for permitting the practice was probably to allow a more rapid population growth on earth, both before and after the flood. Also, at a time when individuals couldn't necessarily depend on governments for security or protection, having a large extended family provided a greater sense of security. Now, while God may have permitted polygamy, the Bible is also clear in presenting the reality that God's plan for humanity was one man and one woman for life. And that was true from the very moment of creation when God announced in Genesis 2 that a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God also makes it clear that individuals who practice polygamy experienced heartache and family trouble as a result. Abraham's experience with Sarah and Hagar and their descendants is one example. Jacob's family problems, when he had Leah, Rachel, Zilpah, and Bilhah, and their rivalries so that's another. And even the rivalry in 1 Samuel 1 between the two wives of Elkanah, the father of Samuel, is a third example. Now, to me, they're all reminders that there is a difference between what God prescribes And what he permits. He permitted polygamy in humanity's early history, but the Bible also provides a clear picture of what happens when it was practiced.
0: Terry writes, I was having a conversation with my son and we discussed the attack that took place in Gaza. We went over how Israel has given up the Gaza Strip and still this was not sufficient and did not bring peace. Could you tell me whether the West Bank has been experiencing encroachment by Israel over the last several years? I don't trust what I hear and can read in various media and would love a comment from you on this.
1: Yeah, that's a straightforward question, but it takes a little bit of a complex answer. So I'll try to be brief, but here are the main points. In 1947, the UN voted on a partition plan for the land. The Jewish people reluctantly accepted. The Arabs did not. When the British mandate ended in 1948, Israel said it was going to be a state, but it was attacked by the Palestinians and the Arab countries on all sides. And when that conflict was over, Israel ended up with more land than originally offered, but no formal borders were determined, only green lines. They marked where the different parties were when the armistice was announced. Now, the final borders were still to be determined, but no Arab countries would agree to make peace with Israel. Jordan took over the central part of the land and next for themselves, they called it the West Bank of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, which was shortened to West Bank, but it never became a country called Palestine. In 1967, Egypt, Syria, and Jordan vowed to push the Jews into the sea. In the Six-Day War then, Israel defeated all three and captured the West Bank, Golan Heights, Gaza Strip, and Sinai Peninsula. Now Israel offered to negotiate the return of most, though not all, that land in exchange for peace. The Arabs met in Khartoum and announced their three no's, no peace with Israel, no negotiations with Israel, no recognition of Israel. In the next few years, Israel did begin expanding into the areas it had captured. Most of the changes in the West Bank area were designed to help provide more defensible borders and to provide additional housing for the country as its population expanded. There are now about a half million Israelis living in the West Bank area, Most are in bedroom communities within five miles of the Knesset, Israel's capital building there in Jerusalem, though some are scattered throughout the area. In the late 1990s, President Clinton tried to broker peace between Israel and the Palestinians. You remember Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat shaking hands on the White House lawn, but the process stalled out. Uh, It never amounted to very much. Uh, The Intifada, the second uprising, began in 2000 and ended that process. Uh, Since then, it's just been a problem. In in 2005, Israel unilaterally withdrew from Gaza. Two years later, Hamas took control and began using the area as a launching pad for their attack on Israel. So has Israel encroached on the West Bank? Well, it depends on which side you support. There never were formal borders, and the land taken by Israel was captured in a defensive war against those trying to wipe them out. So they do have a case for the land. Personally, I blame the Palestinian leadership for most of the problems that have happened. As one Israeli leader described it, they never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity for peace. Time for one more question. This one from Todd. Does Ephesians 5.19
0: mean we really should sing to each other? I know we sing to God in worship, but I don't know that I've ever heard anyone encourage us to sing to each other. I'd be grateful for any insights you can provide.
1: Yeah, and I think there's more in what Paul's saying than just that we ought to be singing to one another. What he says is rather than being controlled by wine, he calls on us to be filled or controlled by the Spirit. And he says that control will show up in four specific ways in our lives. The first is sharing with each other, he says, in psalms, Old Testament psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which I think he's talking about general songs of praise. And I think he's focusing on the time when we publicly join together to express in song our praise to God. In doing so, we're ministering to one another, but The public praise isn't just for the benefit of those around us. He also says, as a second result, we're to sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. So it's also intended as a way for us to worship the Lord. Music that demonstrates the Spirit's control in our lives is a means to minister to others and a means of expressing our love and devotion to God. And I think that's what Paul has in mind there.
0: Well, if it's been a while since you've checked out the website, we'd love to have you pay a visit. It's thelandandthebook.org. There's a podcast feature there that many are already taking advantage of. Have you? It's there at thelandandthebook.org. Information about all of our guests, past programs, future programs, and more, thelandandthebook.org. Don't go away. Charlie's devotional is coming up. the only person who feels like Thanksgiving was like last week, and here we are now, just a couple of days away from Christmas. Along those lines, uh, Charlie, in your devotional today, you're taking us to an Old Testament passage for something you're
1: calling the un-Christmas present. I'm confused. That's right, John. And uh, in fact, I'll follow with this. Did you know December 25 is mentioned in the Bible? And that's what we're going to talk about. All right.
0: I'm looking forward to your unpacking all of that and more in your devotional segment. First, though, let's pause and take in another Holy Land experience, a testimony from somebody who's traveled to Israel and has this remembrance for you and me. Listen.
2: My name is Nancy from Brunswick Hills, Ohio. I was privileged to go to Israel in 2017 with one of Charlie Dyer's tours. And there were so many things that stood out to me from the trip, but one of the biggest was something I never expected. After reading for years about the miracles of Jesus and the awesome power God showed in the Old Testament times, it always seemed that Israel must be some kind of fantastical place, like something from a movie and not real life. But Israel wasn't like that at all. It was just as ordinary as the place where I live in Ohio, and its people are as ordinary as the people I meet each day. It was then that I realized that it wasn't the land that was so special, it was the God of the land, and that He is able to show the same grace and care and power to us right now here in the U.S. and to any of His children around the world as He did for the people of the Bible.
0: Well, I hope you've done all your Christmas shopping. I hope those presents are wrapped and neatly under the tree. And if not, or maybe you're still in the middle of it, now's a great time to listen to this devotional from our friend, Charlie Dyer. Take it away, Charlie.
1: Uh, Thanks, John. And it's a bit of a puzzle at the beginning because, as I said, December 25 is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, But don't get too excited because it really is a trick question. Over the years, many a Bible reader got excited when he or she stumbled across the last chapter in the book of Jeremiah To discover an event that took place, it says, on the 25th day of the 12th month. There it is, 1225, Christmas. Unfortunately, the specific month was reckoned according to the Jewish religious calendar, which begins around late March in the month Nisan. The 12th month is the month Adar, and we're told the specific year for this event, it was the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year Evil Merodach became king of Babylon. So instead of being December 25, the event in Jeremiah 52 actually took place on April 12, 561 BC. But don't be too disappointed. King Jehoiachin wasn't. In fact, he received the best present he could possibly imagine on that particular day. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's head to Babylon to learn more about the un-Christmas present given to Judah's exiled king on that day. Young King Jehoiachin was definitely one of Judah's more minor kings. He followed his wicked father Jehoiakim to the throne during turbulent times. Jehoiakim had broken his oath of loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar brought his army to Jerusalem to destroy the city and punish the king. But something happened along the way that spared Jerusalem, at least temporarily. Apparently, King Jehoiakim was assassinated. After an 11-year reign as a petty despot and corrupt ruler, it seems Jehoiakim was despised by almost everyone. Jeremiah summarized his reign this way, Your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain, on shedding innocent blood, and on oppression and extortion. When Jehoiakim went back on his oath of loyalty to the king of Babylon and turned to Egypt for help, his days were numbered. As Nebuchadnezzar set off from Babylon with his army, intent on destroying this rebellious king and his capital, the people of Jerusalem realized the disaster about to fall on them, and they decided to do something about it. Here's how Jeremiah described Jehoiakim's final moments in office. This is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my brother! Alas, my sister! They will not mourn for him. Alas, my master! Alas, his splendor! He will have the burial of a donkey, dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. Jehoiakim was brutally assassinated, and his 18-year-old son was placed on the throne in his place. But the army of Babylon was approaching the city, and it soon became obvious that the only way for the city to be spared would be for Jehoiachin and the people to surrender. After reigning for just three short months, on March 16, 597 BC, Jehoiachin surrendered. The city was spared, but Jehoiachin was carried off into exile along with thousands of others, all the officers and fighting men and all the craftsmen and artisans. Jehoiachin spent 37 years in captivity. During that entire time, Nebuchadnezzar ruled over Babylon. For part of the time, Jehoiachin's captivity might have been similar to house arrest. We know this because a tablet was uncovered in Babylon dated to 592 BC that lists the payment of rations of grain and olive oil to Jehoiachin and five of his sons. But something must have happened that caused him to be placed in prison. Perhaps it was the rebellion of his uncle, King Zedekiah, against Babylon in late 589 BC. When Judah rebelled again, its fate was sealed, and apparently Jehoiachin also felt the anger of Nebuchadnezzar. For the next 28 years, he was confined in prison. The 18-year-old king taken into exile was now a 56-year-old prisoner who had long ago given up on ever being free again. Then came the best un-Christmas present of Jehoiachin's entire life. Nebuchadnezzar died and his son, Amal Marduk, called Evil Merodach in the Bible, became king in his place. The first partial year of his reign was called the accession year, but on the first day of the first month of the new year, he began his official first year as king. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the year Evil Merodach became king of Babylon, he released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and freed him from prison on the 25th day of the 12th month. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat of honor, higher than those of the other kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes and for the rest of his life ate regularly at the king's table. Day by day, the king of Babylon gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance as long as he lived till the day of his death. A week before the start of his first official year as king, evil Merodach chose to extend kindness and favor to Jehoiachin. He released Jehoiachin from prison, replaced his prison clothes with regal apparel, and gave him a seat of honor at the royal table. From shamed honor, from rags to fine raiment, from prison bars to the presence of royalty, the 25th day of the 12th month brought an unexpected, unmerited, but greatly appreciated change to Jehoiachin's life. So how long did this last? Jeremiah says it lasted as long as he, that is Jehoiachin, lived till the day of his death. There are some hints historically as to how long that might have been. Evil Merodach, Amal Marduk, only reigned for two years before being assassinated. And it seems likely that Jehoiachin died before that event. So this time of blessing likely lasted less than two years before Jehoiachin died. But it's not the length of time that's stressed in the Bible, but the reality that King Jehoiachin went from judgment to blessing. He represents a sort of first fruits for the nation. Just as the king was taken into exile but then released, so God announced the nation would be taken into exile, but would also finally be released and allowed to return home. The king was an illustration offering hope to those still in exile. His unChristmas present was a reminder that their blessing would also come at the appropriate time. So what does Jehoiachin, Evil Merodach, and the 25th day of the 12th month have to do with us today? Well, our own 25th day of the 12th month is almost upon us. And frankly, I suspect that there are some listening today who feel trapped and imprisoned. In spite of all the decorations and tinsel in the stores and around your neighborhood, you might feel ensnared in what seems to be hopeless debt, or locked in a prison of depression, or anxiety, or fear. While others are singing Christmas carols, those same songs seem unable to penetrate your barred and bolted soul. But if you're struggling today, stop and remember that God does care for you. Look beyond your metaphorical fetters and chains to see the freedom and joy God can bring to your imprisoned soul, even today. Just as God took Jehoiachin from incarceration to celebration, he can do the same for you. Here's a suggestion. Find a quiet spot and read aloud to yourself, Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Then read the rest of the Psalm and substitute I and my for the words you and your. Personalize the Psalm and make it God's Christmas present a blessing to you this holiday season.
0: What a fascinating story, Charlie. Thank you for bringing that to life for us. Well, we welcome your email anytime at the land and the book at moody.edu. Thanks for your comments. I'm John Gaker for our host, Charlie Dyer. Thank you for listening. Do join us again next week for another presentation of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.